the series we're in. Today's part three of four. We're in a series called, called Labeled. And we've been looking at this idea, uh, really, of your identity and mind. And we live in a world from our childhood on where we get labeled. We label others. Remember on the playground, I know you are, but what am I? That's one of the quick comebacks that every kid is trained to say, and you have to use that often, right? But we can quickly label ourselves or, or label other people. We carry that with us into adulthood, till the grave. In this series, it flows, this series on identity, this series called Labeled. It flows from a conversation. I think we've talked about this both weeks prior to this one. It flows from a conversation recorded for us in Matthew 16 where Jesus pulls the disciples away from the crowd and says, he asked them a question, who do they say that I am? And the disciples collectively say to Christ, hey, some say you're John the Baptist, uh, others say Elijah, some still say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he asked them a, a very good question directed right to them. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, no surprise to us, Peter answers first. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we said each week that, that Peter was clear on who Jesus was, but Jesus wanted Peter clear on who he was, on who Peter was. Our identity is really, really, um, it's an important thing. There's a a quote from a, a man named Calvin Miller, one of my favorite writers. In fact, if you're a young minister or want to go into the ministry, I recommend a book called Letters to Young Pastors. Here's something that Calvin Miller said. For most who live, hell is never knowing who they are. Now, your identity is the truest thing about you. It's not what you think about you. It's not what others think about you. It's not what you think others think about you. It's rooted in what God says is true about you. There's an actor. I, I was going to illustrate with this quotation anyway, and then he ran afoul of the law this week. Uh, Shia LaBeouf, he says this, I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole, and if I knew I would fill it, I'd be on my way. How do you deal with this, this God-sized hole? Tom Brady, winner of many Super Bowls, was interviewed a couple of years ago. Super Bowl winner, supermodel wife, a home worth $45 million, one, one of his homes. So much that we would say, hey, I, wanted, I want that. I mean, he's arrived. There's a pinnacle of success. And Tom Brady on a 60 Minutes interview a few years ago said all these things, and I just don't, I don't know. It, this is, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. There's got to be something more. Hell on earth is not knowing who you are. We're saying during this series called Labeled that your identity, we're saying a couple of big things. Your identity is not achieved, it's received. And with this new identity, you're given a new responsibility. I want to say something important today. But this, this idea here, bad assumptions lead to bad assessments. Now, some of us, let me be personal, some of you think a lot of yourselves, right? If you're sitting next to someone who thinks an awful lot of themselves, just raise your hand up high. That'd be good. That would help so we would know who's struggling with pride in this room, right? Some of us, we think really highly of ourselves. Some of you think too low of yourself. Our identity, let, let's be honest, let's be really immensely practical. Our identity really is tied to uh, two things, failure or success. If you 
have experienced failure in a business. Maybe you've lost a business. You've lost a relationship. You haven't, you haven't achieved something that you've wanted. You're bankrupt. You're at a loss. Then it's easy to say, well, that's who I am. Or we tie our identity to our successes. Look at me. I'm a little bit prettier than the average person in the room. I'm, I'm wealthier. I'm more successful. Things are hitting on all cylinders. Look at me. And that's tied to your identity. In Romans 12, Paul tells the church when he's going to talk about some beautiful things about love and outdoing one another and showing honor and practicing hospitality. And he says, don't let any man think more highly of himself than he ought. Romans 12, 3 says this about that. Be honest in your assessment of yourself. That's the New Living Translation of Romans 12, 3. Be honest in your assessment of yourself. There's a reality, it's kind of a fancy two-word phrase, nominative determinism. Uh, say that out loud if you would. That doesn't flow off the tongue too well, does it? Nominative, if you think about it too, don't, don't think about it, just say it, just read it. Nominative determinism. And that's a fancy phrase, but it's a theory that was originally postulated in 1950 by a thoroughly secular psychologist. But the idea there is that your name can determine your outcome. Okay, so some popular psychologists have played with this recently. I saw this online this week. I'm going to put up some names one at a time, and you tell me, you take a gander, take a guess at what you think they might do for a living. First name. He's a choir director. Second. OBGYN, that's right. Just look at this one. Do you see death in there? Funeral director. These are true, by the way. Next. She's a lawyer. Couple more. Republican strategist. Nominative determinism. You'll see him later on Fox. <laughs> Not a name, just a picture. It's the fastest man in the world, right? Usain Bolt, and in his autobiography, the story is told, he tells a story of being at the playground. And one of his teachers says to him, Bolt, lightning bolt, you're the fastest. She, she actually did that before he did. And Look, that, those are kind of silly, right? I'm, I'm, there's not a direct inverse relationship there. But you look at Scripture, and some of you have taken this to heart in naming your, your kids, right? I'm not very creative. My firstborn was named R.J., Robert Jr., right? Nothing to that. We started a church. We called it Fondren Church, right? Nothing creative about me. But some of you put a lot of thought into your names, and that's biblical. Uh, many instances, old and new, that when God wanted to do a work in somebody's life, there's, a, there's an instance where he changes a name and nominative determinism probably, the, the outcome uh, changes. Here's an interesting quote from a gentleman, Adam Alter. He's a social researcher. He says, research has shown that our names take deep root within our mental worlds, drawing us magnetically toward the concepts that they embody. Last week I mentioned to you this um, 
psychological thing called the looking glass self. Do you remember that? I mentioned it quickly. The looking glass self is this idea from social psychologists that you become or you strive to become, you want to become like the most important person in your life thinks you should become. What they want from you. You, you live with those expectations. The most important person could be a parent, could be a family member, a friend, a coworker, a classmate, somebody has sway over you. And there's that most important person and they can label you and you can become what you think they want to become. Yesterday I was driving out to the country. I say the country it was actually at Wendell. I did a, a wedding out at Wendell. Some of you are from there have never been out that way, never been to that church and had a, a three o'clock wedding. Drove out that way and it was a beautiful road, winding two lane road. And I noticed at a, at a store, a filling station. When you're out in the country, you call it filling stations, right? I noticed at a filling station that there was a van parked on the side of the road. And I didn't have a, I got a slight stop. I had to yield. And I noticed the van that outside of the van, there was a family inside the van. And outside the van, there was a dad and a little bitty boy, little bitty boy. And he had a little um, number 15 Dak Prescott jersey on. And he was about this tall. So probably about a two, two and a half year old boy. And he was looking down. He had his hands in his pockets and he was looking down at the ground. That father was outside the van while the family waited. And he was leaning over that little boy's shoulder, talking into his ear. And I, you know, you knew this guy's in trouble. I mean, he's negotiating for a peace settlement, I think. Right. But I found myself just cheering for the little fella. I did, you know, because what kind of stern reprimand, what kind of strong rebuke was being spoken into that little guy's ear? And then how far would it take him? I'm all for a good, healthy discipline. I'm all for straightening a kid out so he can get back in the van and play by the rules, right? But I'm just wondering what kind of impact, what kind of damage could be done at that moment? We label ourselves and we get labeled. We really care about what other people think. There's a writer that I discovered online several months ago. I clipped it out. A writer by the name of Jesse Rice. He says, he wrote something I think humorous and very telling to our human condition. He wrote a letter called, Dear Fear of What Others Think. Dear Fear of What Others Think. I'm so sick of you and it's time we broke up. I know we've broken up and gotten back together many times, but seriously, fear of what others think, this is it. I'm tired of overthinking my status updates on Facebook, trying to sound more funny, clever, and important. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do in public, especially around people I don't know that well, all in the hope that they'll like me, accept me, praise me. I run around all day feeling like a golden retriever with a full bladder. Like me, like me, like me. Because of you, fear what others think. I go through my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head and I never stopped acting. The spotlight's always on and I'm on center stage. And I better keep dancing, posturing, mugging, or else the spotlight will move and I'll run and dissolve into a meaningless puddle on the ground, just like that witch in The Wizard of Oz. Fear of what others think, I can never live up to the expectations of my imaginary audience. The, the one that lives only in my head, but whose collective voice is louder than any other voice in the universe. All of this is especially evil because if I really stop and think about it and let things go quiet... And listen patiently for the voice of God who made me and the Savior who died for me. In his eyes, it turns out, I'm actually profoundly precious, worthy, lovable, valuable, and even just a little ghetto fabulous. When I find my true identity in Christ, then you turn back into the tiny little yapping dog that you are. So eat it, fear of what others think. You and I are done. 
And no, I'm not interested in talking it through. I'm running, jumping, laughing you out of my life once and for all, or at least that's what I really, really want. God help me. This morning, we're going to look at a passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'd love for you to turn there. In just a little bit, we'll put it on the screen. I'm going to take just a few minutes to set it up because it makes a great declaration. You remember, as we've said, the two main points of this series, that identity, your identity is not achieved, it is received. And with the new identity comes a new responsibility. We're sharing some of those with you from Scripture. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5. We talked about how we're an ambassador. You, you now are an ambassador. You're called to negotiate peace and settle disputes and to bring peace, to help, to offer aid and help, to represent, to live in this country while you represent another country. And last week, we looked at the idea of alien from 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. You're an alien. You're strange. You're a sojourner. You're not from here. Paul said in Philippians 3, some people, their God is their appetite. They follow that. Their goal is vainglory. But you, I, our citizenship in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. And in just a little bit, we'll look at 1 Peter 2, 9. But I want to talk to you before we put that passage up. I just want to talk to you for a little bit about that what I want to call the ABCs of your identity according to Scripture. What does God say about you? If you're a note taker, you can write down ABC. And the first thing I want to tell you is that God says about you that you're adopted. You're, you're adopted. When Susan and I first started dating, uh, it would have been 20 plus years ago now, right at 20 years. It was one of our first dates and I flew out there to be with her and we went out on a date with some of her friends and I wanted to impress her, I wanted to impress them. And I uh, ordered, at the restaurant, I ordered bar a barbecue while I was wearing a white shirt. And I took a rib and the first rib I took, I, I, it, I dropped it on my shirt. And so I covered, I used the other arm to cover that, right? And the second rib, or maybe the third, I dropped it in my lap. And so I grabbed the third or fourth rib, the next rib, and I just dipped it in the barbecue sauce and just smeared it all over my clothes, right? Because I, I had nothing to hide. Those same friends, they invited us over to their house. Uh, several days later, they put newspaper all around the floor, you know, for me to eat. But, you know, I want to fit in. I want to be brought in. I want to, be, I want to enter in. I want to be a part of the family of people who love me. I want them to love me. But I have a sin-stained soul. I don't measure up. I'm, I miss the mark. I, I can't clean myself up. I, I can't on my own clean up my act. And there's no reason to even hide. No reason to even try to cover it up. And that's the effect of sin. That's the alienation. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through the forgiveness of our sins because he shed, he spilled his blood on our behalf. That's what we have in Jesus. And through that, he says some great things. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. He says we're adopted. Here's this beautiful passage. I think if we wait, it'll come. Are we there? There we go. Even as he chose us in him before, there's that where he chose us. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the will, to the purpose rather, of his will. Now we just pleased and placated all the Presbyterians in the room, right? We believe that, right? God did that. He predestined, he chose us. 
You are chosen. You are adopted. Do you know anyone that's adopted? We have some in the room. I, I, I see some of you. You yourselves were adopted or you yourselves have adopted. I know of kids in Mexico and South Africa and Cambodia and right here from an orphanage in Ukraine that have been adopted, that didn't have much at all. Some that lived in extreme abject poverty and squalor and they were, they were loved, they were chosen, they were sheltered. There was someone big around them that said, I, I select you, I choose you to be mine. You are adopted, the ABCs of what God says about you. You're adopted. Secondly, you're beautiful. Now, guys, you got to put aside the macho masculine thing for a second. But God says, you're beautiful. Actually, research shows a lot more men these days are looking in the mirrors, right, and checking themselves out at the gym. So maybe beautiful is a masculine word. But you're, you're beautiful. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says this, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. We, God selects us and God molds us. God chose us. He knit us together. And he says, I want you to live your life on display. You're, you're hung in the God's gallery for other people to see you're beautiful. Years ago in the 1930s, you know, we're all today watching debates. We watch televised debates on TV. And many, many years ago, um, across the pond, the big pond, Winston Churchill had, had a rival named Lady Astor. And they had a debate. They took their, their disdain for one another, their war of words, onto the radio. And Lady Astor, I mean, picture, you know, Donald Trump going after Jeb Bush or Donald Trump going after Hillary or Donald Trump going after anybody, right? It's just, it's just it can get kind of nasty. And Lady Astor said on the radio airwaves in the, in the year 1930, in June of that year, she, she said, Mr. Churchill, Sir Churchill, if I was married to you, I would slip poison into your tea. And Winston Churchill said, said back to her, Lady, if I was married to you, I would drink it. <laughs> We're not always beautiful to each other. The, I love that last line in The Ugly Duckling. Hans Christian Andersen writes, it doesn't matter so much that you were born in a duckyard if you've been hatched from a swan's egg. And that's what God says about you. You and I, I know I do, I spend a lot of time thinking about the duckyard and my circumstances and things that I don't like and things that are smelly and yucky and so earthy around me. But God tells us that we're beautiful, that we're hatched from a swan's egg, that there's something really beautiful about you. The ABCs of your identity, you're adopted, you're beautiful, and you're complete. It's going to be heavy when I say this, but we've been hurt, dismayed by this sight, Ashley Madison. Life is short to have an affair. And I see that and I think, what have we become to? What have we come to? What are we becoming? You know, sin does that. It does it in my life. does it in yours. Sin demonstrates to us our incompleteness. And what do we do? We look to be completed. Everybody, all of us, including the guy preaching. My, my sins are many and so are yours. But we look, we're always looking 
And we're so incomplete. I love Ephesians 3 that talks about our completeness. I think we looked at this about two months ago, this passage. Ephesians 3, this is uh, 17 to 19, I believe. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and you keep strong. And may, and you may, I'm sorry, and may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will, may, you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. He and he alone can complete you. Every time I go elsewhere, every time my commitments seem heavy, every time I, it seems like God's word and the commands and the ordinances and the statues, every time it just seems too heavy for me, the temptation is to go elsewhere, to say that I'm not complete. And what do we seek to do? We default to our sin nature. What tempts us and allures us becomes so easy to go to and gets get stuck in. You're adopted, you're beautiful, and you're complete. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, let's look at that. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Just like week one, we had you circle the word ambassador, and last week we had you circle the word alien. This morning, I want you to circle the word priesthood. In fact, just the first part of that, priest. Now, that's a stretch for me, is it you? I mean, do I wear a, a robe? Do I wear a, a white collar? Do I spend time in a monastery up high on a mountain? I'm willing to do all that, Jeff, all that. I'm willing to do all that if Fondren Church pays for it. I'm willing to go to that mountain, that monastery. I'm willing to get away for a several weeks sabbatical. What, what, what is a priest? There's over 700, I think the number is 710 references in the Old Testament to this idea of priest. And these, these men were religious leaders. What, what did they do? And why would we later in the new covenant, why would we be called priest? Jesus, it's interesting, the book of Hebrews, the greatest book about this. If you want to study more on the priesthood of Jesus, of your, your priesthood and royal priesthood, study the book of Hebrews. Now, you're going to be emailing me or somebody to find out information about Melchizedek and some of the difficulties in Hebrews. But it's a beautiful, beautiful passage, beautiful writing. And it talks about our Savior Jesus, who was the great high priest. He was on one hand, listen, he was on one hand the lamb, the atoning sacrifice. And at the same time, he was the great high priest. And he's called us into the priesthood. Now, that's not our nomenclature. That's not our wording necessarily. But what does Peter mean here? Remember, he's writing to people who persecuted in the time of Nero. I gave you some of that history and background of what was happening. Christians were literally being fed to the lions. They were being burned at the stakes to light the streets so that Nero could race his charioteer, this young, ego-driven emperor who was against the Christians. Remember this whole letter Peter's writing, and he's saying, stand out, be different, don't retaliate. All the things, these fiery ordeals, the suffering that's happened to you, it's happening for a reason, and it will refine you like gold 
it will refine you. And by the way, this isn't even your life. All the precious promises you're clinging to, the Jesus calling that you've got at your bedside, not all those promises are gonna come true right here and right now. But you have an inheritance, 1 Peter chapter one. You have an inheritance that's undefiled, that doesn't perish. It's reserved in heaven for you. But he says to us, while we're here, live as ambassadors, live as aliens, live as a priest, a royal priest. Now in our day, maybe you've heard this. In fact, you, you know, look for a church that teaches this. We do. But the, 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 that every member is a minister. You understand that. That's the new covenant. That's the church that Jesus wants to, uh, to lead. He wants it not to be just a few people. He, he has appointed apostles and prophets and teachers and leaders. He's given people with the gift of administration, the gift of leadership, and all that so the church can function. And that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. But he's put us, he's put people like me in place, in this place, so that you would be equipped to do the good works of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4. You are a priest. You are a minister. And I'm going to pare it down to just a few things, okay, because we only have a few minutes. But just a few things that the Bible taught us in the Old Testament were related to our time. But in the Old Testament, here are a few things that, that the priest did. The first two are this. Priest represented the people to God, and priest also represented God to people. There's a lot that we could get into. Your homework assignment, for those who are interested, is to read Hebrews. But it'll talk about this. It'll talk about the old priesthood and the new covenant. But life after, for you and I, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, as it was demonstrated in the early church and ought to be lived out in our day. But the priest, you know, there was atonement. There was sacrifices. There was blood. There was mess. And the priests were very, it was a very honored occupation in its day. Very, very honored. But it was, it was messy. These men got involved in people's mess, a literal physical mess, but that was analogous to the mess of their lives. There's a holy God, and God, through these people, wanted people to know that he is a holy God and that sin incompletes them and sin hurts them and sin separates, not just from that God, but it separates us from each other and the life of flourishing that God intends. And hence, these sacrifices... And God wanted these people to be called out to represent and to, in essence, bridge a gap between God and people. And so you see so much of the writing of the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the outer courts and the inner courts and the holy of holies. And that mirrors your life and mine. There's an outer court. There's a public persona. That's when you take the stage or when you post something, when you stand in front of a group of people. We all, in some ways, manage the outer court, the public image of who we are. But then there's an inner court, and that's more of your private life. And that's what not everybody sees. Some people do. That's kind of the bummer about the people you live with. If you're married, your spouse, your family, if you have roommates, those, those roommates, they, they see some of that inner court. And then there's the holy of holies, and that's just you. That's your heart. That's your choice whether you love or lust. That's your choice whether you worship. Now, we all worship, just what do you worship? But that's the inner sanctum, the, the deepest part of you, the holy of holies. And throughout the Old Testament, only God entered in. There's certain periods, certain times where a man would mediate between them. But what does this mean? How do we live this out in our day? Priests represented people to God and priests represented God to people. Just like I sat on that early date with Susan, wanting her to love me, wanting to be included, wanting to impress her. And it became apparent that I'm not very impressive. 
And every time I make a mistake or fail, I try to cover up. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. A beautiful story. A lot of you know it. They hid. They covered up. They blamed. That's what we do. That's what you do. See, you're denied it now, some of you. I can see that look on your face like, not me. But that's, that's, that's what we do in our sin. It's a serious matter. But we're called as we experience the forgiveness, right? We, we say, this is who I am, but I'm adopted. I'm beautiful. I'm complete. And as we experience that, we relate that to the, to the world. Are you comfortable with that? Just nod if you are. How about this? Nod, let's put it this way. Are you a little uncomfortable thinking you could represent God to people? Just nod your head. I, I know some of you very well, and I'm very, it's uncomfortable to me to think that you could represent God to people, right? I mean, I'm your pastor. I know some of your secrets. A lot, by the way, a lot of Bibles get left on Sunday morning. We have a really high, I think the stack, Jeff's about that high of Bibles in the lost and found, and sometimes journals. And I would never read your Bibles. It's your Bible. But I have read your journals <laughs> so I can know how to pray for you. I'm uneasy about the idea at times because I know my stuff, I know my sin. But as God frees me to, to flourish and be who he's called me to be, I know that he's called me to represent God to people and people to God and to equip you to do the same, to, to motivate you to do the same. About a year ago, some of us were up on the second floor looking out over the parking lot and we noticed a, a strange car with someone in that car, and it, we just all felt a little uneasy about maybe what was happening out there. And I looked at a couple of our guys and said, well, go out there, go check. I'm scared. I'm the boss. You go check. But no, for real, a, a couple of us went out to the, to the car, and we could tell that a man was in the car and the man was hurting. And we learned later through a, a conversation, we invited him inside, and we learned that he was thinking some real serious thoughts about his life in that car. And he, he had been crying. He was really upset. And we learned that he had not just lost his job, he lost another job. They were very high-paying jobs. He, he felt, you know, men don't feel good about ourselves if we don't provide. There's just that ambitious orientation about us, and we so deeply want to provide. And he felt so embarrassed, didn't want to go home and face his family. Didn't really know if life was worth living. Invited him in and we, we talked and found out what one of his needs was. He had a very immediate need. And I remember that morning, someone, one of you in our church was telling me about the gift of giving that God had given you. That you were looking out for needs. You weren't just tithing and providing offerings to our church. You were looking for needs around you. And I, I called that guy. I said, hey, you remember what you told me this morning? I don't, I don't know if I'm forcing. I certainly don't want to force anything on you, but here, here's what's happened. And this guy came and sat, and he found out what this guy needed. And he got out his checkbook, and he wrote a check, and he slid it across the table, and it was twice the amount that the guy said that he needed. And he told him that, an honest guy. He said, oh, this is, this is too much. And this gentleman said, I have, forgiven, I have been forgiven way more than I deserve by my God. And I'm in a position to do this, and I want to do this. And he's a real funny man. He walked out. He goes, don't spend it on prostitutes and drugs, but God bless you. 
ruined a good moment, really. <laughs> a priest represents God to people and people to God. Jesus, who was so rich, became poor on your behalf that you and I might be rich. Rich how? Rich and that we're adopted, that we're beautiful, that we're complete. And yes, at times, rich in the blessings he gives us that we ought to pour over into the lives of other people. I know a friend who went by the abortion clinic not long ago. And he went in to talk to a doctor. There were no protesters in that moment. And he went in and he said, hey, uh, I'm so-and-so and I'm a Christian. And the doctor, there was a little bit of awkwardness and uneasiness, I guess is the best word, just uneasy. He said, hey, you know, I don't know where you are in your faith or what you believe, but what, what do you think about Christians? And he said, well, the ones that hang around here can be real ugly. He said, you know, I bet you know what Christians are against, and you and I, we're not on the same page. We don't believe exactly the same thing. But I bet you, in a way, hate this like I hate it. But here's the deal. I want to know if you know what Christians are for. Because Jesus calls us to be pro-people, pro-love, and pro-prayer. I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to pray against you. I'm just going to pray for you. Who are you and what's happening in your life? And I want to pray for you. Priests represent people to God and God to people. Some of you know, if you served or had loved ones served, there's this beautiful thing at the cemetery in Washington, D.C., outside uh, called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And I won't tell you all about it. It's a great read if you want to Google it later. You see a, a wreath there, but there is just outside of that picture, there's a soldier. You say, how do you know? Well, there's always a soldier. There's always a soldier on guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. 24-7, 365 days a year. On September the 6th, 2003, a hurricane hit the capital of Washington, D.C. Hurricane Isabella, or the effects of the hurricane. It was a really bad storm and did damage to some of our nation's museums and artifacts and the area, a lot of the trees and such. And during that storm, the soldier who was on guard at the time was asked to, to come away from the tomb. And the soldier refused. He said, not me. Not me. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that guy that leaves when the storm comes. It's part of the fabric. It's, it's our belief system. It's, it's a symbol of what makes this nation great, that we will remember the fallen. And those who don't have a name, we will, by our acts, by this symbol, we will say, you are remembered, and I am not leaving. And I thought when I read that story a couple of weeks ago, what if that was us? What if we stood beside each other? If we're going to fill in the gap and represent God to people and people to God, then part of what we're called to do is to stay with each other. To stick with each other when times get hard. And when someone's hurt and when someone is fallen, we don't run away. We don't retreat. We say, I'm with you. And God is not against you. And neither am I. And do you know, have you observed this in life, that for people, of which I am one and you are one, that for people to really believe that God is not against them, they have to see somebody standing with them. And that's the priesthood. That's what the church is called to be. The third thing that we want to say about the priesthood is this. 
that priesthood represent, they, I'm sorry, they present a picture of purity to the world. And that word purity is just tough. And it? that's like the word priest. That's just a tough word to deal with. In Psalm 24, remember Jesus didn't, he didn't abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. But in Psalm 24, it asks the question, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Do you know the answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Very priestly phrases because in the Old Testament, there was, there was ceremonial cleansing, washing of the hands, which I, by the way, as a germphobe, I'm all for that. Wash your hands and sing the national anthem and do the ABCs all the way to Z. You know, use the antibacterial soap, which I thought soap had antibacterial stuff in it. I don't know. But anyway, you, you, you rinse and rinse and rinse and clean, cleanse yourself. And what was on the outside, God is saying that's important on the inside. That's the purify your heart element to that. And what does that mean? Years ago, I flew out of town, out of state to be involved in an important funeral. And I was scrambling around the, the city, venturing around, finding my way. And I needed some pants. I needed some slacks, dress slacks taken care of for the visitation later that evening. And I found a place called One Hour Cleaners. And I went in and I was so excited. The lady was chewing gum and smiling at me behind the counter. And I said, oh, I'm from out of town, got something important. So glad I found you one hour cleaners, right? She said, yes, sir. And she chewed on her gum. And I said, okay, great. So just to make sure we're on the same page here, I can drop these, I can leave these here with you now, go run around, do some things, come back in an hour, a little bit more, and they'll be ready for me, right? She said, no, sir. I said, so one hour, she goes, oh no, we don't do clothes in an hour. And to substantiate my claim and where my heart was, I pointed at the sign and she squinted at the sign as if she had not seen it. She continued to chew her gum and she goes, oh no, we, we, don't, we don't do that. I thought, well, maybe, maybe you change the name of this place to one day cleaner or whenever it's ready cleaners or something like that, right? But one hour, that's, I tried to negotiate politely and give her every angle that I had but it wasn't getting done. And we hate it, don't we? I did that day. We hate it when we advertise something on the outside, but we're different on the inside. Commercially or whatever way that is. But it's really true relationally and spiritually. And when the Bible, especially when Jesus came, read Matthew chapter 23 if you have any um, inkling to do so. But Jesus wanted to teach religious people, of which some, maybe some of us are. You know, there's a spirit of religiosity in the state of Mississippi. I joined some other pastors a few weeks ago. One, we prayed for things and for people and for rec racial reconciliation and for us to bless our community. And we prayed against the spirit of religiosity. And the spirit of religiosity says outside, outside, outside. Behavior, behavior, behavior. And Jesus is saying it's really bad thing and it's not a pure thing when we advertise one thing on the outside, but inside we are another way entirely. And purity, purity is understanding that our motives don't need to be mixed. That what's happening in here is really important. And I'm so thankful today that there's a Savior a priest who offered a sacrifice. And though we don't put it on the screen, I want to point you to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. This says, we have a high priest. I'm sorry, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was like us in all points tempted, but without sin. And therefore, 
let us come boldly to the throne of grace. One of the most beautiful expressions to me in all of Scripture, come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Thank God for a high priest. I want to ask you today to bow your head, and I want to pray against the labels that you're carrying. If it's ugly or fat or insecure or jealous or unusable, impure, damaged, whatever label that you carry, I pray against that over you today. That you would receive and understand that your identity is the truest thing about you. And it's not what other people think about you. It's not what you think about you. It's not what you think other people think about you. It's rooted in what God says about you. And you are adopted. You are beautiful. You are complete in Jesus because of the work of the great high priest. And I'm telling you, the role that we're called to do is to come boldly to the throne of grace because of Jesus. To find that mercy. And to receive that grace and help in time of need. And then we, we serve the role of the royal priesthood to this world. You're an ambassador. You're an alien. You are a priest. You are called to represent God to people and people to God. And demonstrate purity to this world that needs it.